Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by Wix.com and SeatGeek. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of April 1st, 2019. On this week's episode, we recap the opening day series in Kansas City as the Chicago White Sox were able to salvage one win in the three-game series. There are some positives to take away from the series against the Royals, and there are some aspects of this team that, well, quite frankly, we may need to keep an eye on just to see if there is rapid improvement, which for a team still in a rebuild, that's what we are looking for. And we'll highlight those in a moment. We'll preview the first White Sox-Indian series of 2019 as Cleveland is not starting the season 100% healthy and they lost their opening series at Minnesota. Matt Lyons of Let'sGoTribe.com will join the show to give some perspective on what is going on in Cleveland. Finally, you, our listeners, had questions after this weekend's play and we'll tackle those in P.O. Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox are 1-2 to start 2019. Looking at the weekend as a whole, there are some positives to take away and there are negatives. Well, we knew that they were going to exist, but it's still painful to actually watch them unfold on the field. Um, Before we begin breaking down the individual aspects of these first three games, what is your overall takeaway after the first series? These were two not good teams that seemed to balance each other out pretty well. Um, basically, all three games took the same shape: one pitcher out pitching the other, and then some bullpen bringing it, uh, bringing the other team back into it, and the scores being uh, maybe not as lopsided as they could be. So, yeah, it, it was not great baseball, and some of that is, I imagine, especially early on, terrible weather, rain delays, cold, uh, damp, windy weather. Uh, also players finding their gear still trying to, uh, you know, get to, uh, uh, full strength and, and fully in the rhythm of the season. So there's that, but they're also teams that are under talented. 
Well, with that said, okay, so the White Sox lose the first series against Kansas City. These two teams, I think the White Sox won the season series last year 10-9. to They won 10 out of the 19 games, so very even. I know it's just the first three games of the year, but are we going down this same path again, which the White Sox and Royals are going to split 19 games? I wouldn't count it out. I don't think the White Sox are good enough to where you can look at any of the rebuilding teams, whether it's the Royals or the Tigers or the Orioles or you know anybody like that. The Mariners, perhaps, although the Mariners are five and one right now, so maybe they're not a rebuilding team after all. But when it comes to you know the 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 lopsided nature of the schedule or what should be lopsided, I think you know as we talked about before that the White Sox are probably probably the team that. Uh, other teams look forward to playing as a break. Uh, I don't think they deserve the benefit of the doubt yet. I think they have to show it. They've been horrible against the Central for for years now. I think since 2012, they've had a losing record um, against the Central uh, basically every year. And uh, whether from Robin Ventura or Rick Renteria, it's been mostly the same thing. So, yeah, it's really not... Uh, uh, I, I would more or less assume that they're going to be 500-ish against the other rebuilding teams until... Uh, they have basically one good year where they show that there's some separation between them and the bottom. Let's break down the individual aspects then from this series. And again, I'm trying to be more positive this season. So we'll start on a good foot. And that's Yohan Mikata. Great series at the plate. He was six for mm-hmm. 13 batting. He scored five runs. He had a double. He had a home run. He drove in three runs. He only had two strikeouts in the three games and he did have one walk. He made good plays defensively. Uh, he did make a great pick at third off a sharp grounder, but his throw was errant, and that would have been a, a definitely highlight reel type of play. So he doesn't look completely lost at third base. Again, he looked good in the first three games. But at the plate, Jim, Makata just looks more comfortable, and it looks like he knows what he's looking for, or I guess this is where hitting coaches would say that a batter has a good game plan at the plate uh, mm-hmm. and whatever pitch that he's looking for. He didn't miss his pitch that many times this weekend. However, is this a mirage because it's against Kansas city pitching or do you think there are real adjustments that Mikata has made from last year? I think it could be both. I think the upcoming series with Cleveland going against Mike Clevenger and Corey Kluber, that'll be a little bit of a test. I think going from the Royal starting staff to the Indians, there might be a little bit of a, uh, culture shock there for Mankata and other hitters, but I think it could be a little bit of both. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me in his second year that he uh, figures out what his uh, or what pitchers have identified at his greatest weaknesses and he, he shores them up and uh, forces you know the adjustments to the adjustments to the adjustments that kind of thing. And it's his turn to adjust. He might be doing that, and he could force the league to rewrite the book. And and I think that last. Uh, that that single he had, that RBI single of two outs where he swung at the first pitch, it wasn't it wasn't a mistake, it wasn't a terrible pitch. It was outer half. Um I think down he just reached out and poked in the center. And uh, you know, that might be the evidence of the game plan where he has an idea of what what they're gonna be doing to him. He has a zone that he's locking in on on a on a first pitch where he's gonna offer if it's there and didn't overswing. He just uh, more or less poked it to center and it and it worked out really well and it was their first hit with runners in scoring position and who knows if he makes the third out there, perhaps they go 0 for 8 or 9 or whatever they were going to be. It does look like he has more of a plan. Um, the question is then, you know, should that plan be blown up by a couple of good pitchers in a row? Will he revert? But so far, so good. Now, a negative, and my number one negative from this series is the defense, Jim. 
collisions on the mm-hmm. field because nobody's calling for fly balls, bad throws in the infield, not getting in front of grounders in the infield, four errors total this weekend. And for a team that has shaky starting pitching, they need the defense to at least carry their load and make the plays they should. I'm not asking them to go above and beyond and make amazing diving grabs out in the outfield or show incredible range, just the plays that they should make. And I'm afraid this weekend is a sign of more to come in 2019. What are your thoughts about the White Sox defense after the first weekend? Well, the outfield looks like it's going to be a bit of a mess. I think if Leori Garcia is getting the bulk of the playing time in center, and so far uh, he's been there, that's a weak outfield when you have Eloy in left and, and uh, Palka in right and Garcia in center. Angle shores it up a little bit. I think we saw it too with Garcia and, and Jimenez uh, bumping into each other in the outfield and Jimenez and uh, Anderson not communicating on a on a fly ball down the left field line. I think there are some inexperience issues with guys not playing with each other and, and no real field generals uh, in the outfield. I think that might be a bit of an issue to uh, to figure out. And then you have the infield that's being shifted around with Moncada going to third and Sanchez going to second. And some of that may be, you know, it may take a while to gel um, just for, you know, the, I guess the comfort of them working together and, and knowing what the other guy can get to. I think there's some of that. Some of that might, you know, some of the issues might be Tim Anderson. Yeah. It seems like he may run hot or cold or may take him a while to, uh, get into the, uh, I guess the rhythm of a season. And, you know, that's a little bit problematic, but, uh, I guess we, we've seen him have these clumps of errors before and then come back and be a, a good shortstop for most of the season. So I'm hoping that's the case here. Sanchez was a little bit disappointing at second. Uh, you know, perhaps that's a thing reacquainting himself, but there are some places where they can get better. And I think around the infield as Mankata gets used to making more of the plays at third base and Sanchez the same at second. I think that can shore up, but I think the outfield, as long as it's going to be Garcia in center and then, you know, Eloy and, Paul can write maybe when Jay comes up that uh, that straightens out a little bit. But right now for the current mix, uh, it's going to be hard to get uh, decent defensive play out there. Yeah, the John Jay news, injury wise, we're not going to know more until the team comes back into Chicago. So that's going to be this upcoming Thursday. I'm a bit worried about his physical status to start the year. Uh, hopefully the back and the hip issue subside and. John Jay does join the ball club. I agree with you, Jim. That will help defensively, especially in one of the corners. All right, so that's negative one. Let's go back to the positive. Positive point number two this weekend, Lucas Giolito, baby. He carried a no-hitter into the seventh inning, Jim. Uh, Finished short, of course. He was not able to get out of the seventh inning. He pitched six and two-thirds innings, only allowed three hits, two earned runs, eight strikeouts to one walk, and he started the game with the walk to Whit Merrifield. That was a terrible start to the game for Giolito. Could not command his fastball, four straight balls, and I thought, oh, man, here we go. But no, he he really made some adjustments, and the changeup, man, did that pitch look good on Sunday, and it does look like the short and arm action, as during the broadcast, Steve Stone, if you didn't get a chance to watch it, explained the adjustments that Lucas Giolito has made, and also James Fegan of The Athletic, friend of the show, you can go to The Athletic, James wrote even more in-depth about the adjustment that Lucas Giolito has made. Uh, it looks like this adjustment by shoring the arm in his windup, Jim, uh, 
is a game changer. Do you think his performance today is repeatable? Or again, like I asked you about Mikata, is this a case of pitching against the Royals? It has the elements of being more repeatable. Uh, when it comes to Giolito, he's made a lot of mechanical changes in the past and some have stuck. Some have been abandoned like within two weeks. And uh, so it's hard to fall in or, or you want to guard against falling into a trap with Giolito. Um, it, it does seem with in this case that the shortened arm action does mitigate the problems with tall pitchers just having a lot of difficulty getting all their uh, long levers together and, and, and on the same page and in the same rhythm on a, on a repeatable basis. Shortening the arm action just, uh, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of a bat path a little bit, uh, a swing path, just not having a hitch and, and hmm. getting to the point of uh, contact. It, it kind of reminds me of the same thing. Just uh, trying to eliminate a hitch to get to the uh, same point with your release on a, on a reliable basis. He wasn't falling off the mound, uh, so it seems like his balance was better. Uh, that, that first pitch or that first uh, batter walk to Merrifield kind of reminded me, you know, after the smoke cleared from a little bit and he got some separation from it, it kind of reminded me of a uh, a new season in a show where, where that walk was previously on Lucas Giolito. Four fastballs out of the zone, <laughs> fast runner on base. And I thought, here we go again. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's a new season and uh, he's changed and uh, he got a new job and uh, uh, he's got a pet dog who talks and uh, all this fun stuff. So hopefully, you know, that's the case where, um, you know, there is a corner turned. Um, I, I think, you know, better lineups and, uh, you know, we'll have something to say about that. But I don't think he made a lot of mistakes either. Like, like you said, the changeup was really good. Uh, the curveball kind of came and went, but then he went to the slider uh, for a little bit more reliable break and was able to locate that pretty well. So it seems like if he can have one or the other, along with a changeup and even decent fastball command, you know that that has the recipe for the third starter we're hoping for, with maybe flashes of a little bit better. Yeah, Giolito's pitch mix: fifty-four fastballs, nineteen changeups, fourteen curveballs. And 11 sliders, as you mentioned. Yeah, the curveball only got one swinging strike out of 14 pitches, while the slider was more effective, four swinging strikes out of 11 thrown. And then the changeup, four swings and misses out of 19 pitches, but five called strikeouts. So the changeup was a nice pitch for Lucas Giolito, and including four fouls. The thing with the changeup for Giolito is I am still not impressed with his fastball. I still think his fastball is below average, Jim. But if he can steal strikes with the fastball early in the count, if a guy is being patient and Giulio can steal strike one with a fastball in the outside corner or get a foul ball off one of his fastballs, then he can go to his second secondary offerings, which look a lot better than his fastball. So I, that's what I'm going to be paying attention to in Giulio's next start against the Seattle Mariners, the world-beater Seattle Mariners. As you mentioned, Jim, they're 5-1, and yeah. one, an unstoppable offense at this moment. Yeah, it, it did seem with his fastball, it, you're talking about like the location, it seemed like he was really good at, at working up on left-handed hitters and just getting... I, I don't think he was... I mean, swings and misses would be nice, but I think he was just changing eye level, giving hitters something to look at, making them, you know, keep them honest on or keeping them honest on covering the fastball and he was throwing up and in on lefties getting them to foul him off foul him to the uh you know third base side and then that set up the change up and, and being a little bit more anxious for uh his pitches then he was able to you know either drop the curve or the slider or you know something off speed and that's where the the ground balls happened and the uh and, and the swings and misses so yeah the fastball did a good job 
he elevated it, kept it nice and high where foul balls were the most likely outcome. And, you know, that just kind of kept the bat alive for other pitches to do their jobs. Now the negative number two, we're going to stick with the starting pitch, and that's Ronaldo Lopez. Lopez did not have a good start in the game two. He gave up four runs in four innings because of a high pitch count, uh, which he had four walks to just two strikeouts. After the game, Lopez mentioned that the cold weather got to him. Is that a reasonable excuse, Jim? It could be. Um, you know, I don't think it's a and I'm not, I'm imagining he's not using it as an excuse like that he you know he shouldn't have done better or shouldn't have been expected to do better um, because he was outpitched by the the Royal starter so it's not like it was a terrible day for everybody but you know for one guy on one day and and maybe with Lopez you know uh, that his stuff is still a work in progress when it comes to his you know getting sliders for strikes and 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 fastball location can, can kind of come and go with him. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at one day where problems compound and he just doesn't like anything he's throwing and doesn't really have the confidence to do so. And yeah, I think it's disappointing just because it looked like at the end of the season, it, it looked more like he had uh, not been so uh, prone to uh, external factors or he was able to correct his mechanics when they weren't off or when they were off. But in this case, it didn't work for him. Uh, I think... Uh, Given the weather and given just, you know, the one start sample size, you kind of have to write it off for now, but it's something to keep in mind, uh, uh, you know, should other starts follow where he's walking more than he's striking out and he's, uh, you know, needs 90 pitches to get through four innings. Then, uh, you know, there's a template for a problem here, but for one start and for the terrible weather that they had, um, it seems reasonable, at least uh, for now, but keep it in your back pocket. I still want to continue talking about as far as the White Sox Royal Series, but a Wizard of Oz moment to pull back the curtain. At the time we're recording this, Jim, Jeff Passett of ESPN just tweeted that Xander Bogart to the Boston Red Sox have agreed to a contract extension for seven years, $132 million. So to go back to previous conversations we had in January, February, and earlier March, all I got to say is the 2019-2020 offseason is over. Yeah, and, and you know, it's... With, with Abreu, um, you know, the White Sox saying they don't like to work something out. Dave Dombrowski said the same thing, that after opening day, generally the conversations stop and, and, and Bogart signs within the first week. So, you know, perhaps the heavy lifting in the offseason or spring training made it possible to do it. But at the same time, I think GMs are more or less uh, like to use that as maybe uh, pressure to send an extension. And then they, there's more flexibility than they let on. And so it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I would still say it's maybe more likely that the White Sox wait until after the season with Abreu, but uh, it, it shouldn't shock anybody now that any desirable free agent uh, tries to avoid the market if they get any kind of uh, life-changing amount of money. Well, right now it's Anthony Rendon, number one as far as the free agent target for any team along with Garrett Cole. Um, but Jose Abreu, Jim, at this moment might be a top 10 free agent next offseason. Yeah, with the way he's hitting now. Yes, and we're going to talk about Jose Abreu on the way that he's hitting. Before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor, Draft. If you love fantasy baseball, then you have to try my new favorite app, Draft. It's daily fantasy baseball, but not like the other guys. On Draft, it's an actual draft. It's not a salary cap. You go through a live snake draft and you face other people. And there are season-long leagues called Best Ball. Very fun. And drafts just last for one night when you're doing the daily fantasy side. And once you're done drafting, that's it. You don't have to worry about trades or waiver wire or setting up your, your lineup. 
That's your team. It's five players, two outfielders, two infielders, and a starting pitcher. The best part, and why I love draft, is that you play for cash and you get paid out the next day via PayPal. It's incredibly quick to deposit and cash out. And drafts start from just $1, and there's a draft for everyone. And what I do every single day on draft, if you follow me on Twitter, at SoxMachine underscore Josh, I will post a link to a daily contest for Sox Machine fans on draft. The entry will be about $1 or $3, ranging from anywhere from six to nine people in the lobby, depending on how aggressive I want to be. And the best part is that Sox Machine listeners get a free entry into a real money contest. So if you are interested in daily fantasy sports and you want to give this a try, download the draft app from the app store on your smartphone, or you can play right from your computer on draft.com. And for a limited time only, all Sox Machine listeners get a free entry into a real money baseball draft. That first entry for you can be part of the Sox Machine daily contest, and you can enter for free and come away with cash without having to spend anything. How awesome is that? So again, download Draft from the App Store or play right from your computer on Draft.com, and I look forward to going up against you every single day during the Major League Baseball season on draft and Jose Abreu Jim positive number three for me he's locked in he was four for 11 this series he hit two home runs yonder Alonso also hit a home run and he was just two for 11 but he walked four times so that's going to be the benefit of Alonso in the lineup this guy gets on base and the more times he gets on base the more opportunities players like Eloy Jimenez are going to get to be able to drive in runs. So let's talk about Eloy Jimenez. And I'm not going to say this is a positive. I don't think it's also a negative, but he did finish the weekend two for 11 as he did have a multi-hit game on Saturday. He did strike out four times over the three games and he walked once, but that was a bases loaded walk. So he got another cheapy RBI. And I noticed Jim in games two and three after seeing so many sliders in game one, 17 pitches seen 14 of them sliders Ilya was doing a much better job of laying off the sliders, but still not making hard contact. He faces Cleveland this week, which will not be any easier. You talked about not being any easier for Yohan Mikata. Uh, Jimenez is going to have to face Clevenger and, of course, Corey Kluber, the White Sox killer. Should we prepare ourselves for Ilya to have a slow start to 2019? I would say yes, just because he's a rookie, <laughs> because he's a White Sox rookie. Uh, just the White Sox have a history of not having anything be as easy as it might look. Um, so in this case, I would say that uh, with Jimenez being, um, you know, having no major league track record, being somewhat of a late addition to the mix when it comes to the extension being sprung on everybody, uh, it, it would seem possible that there might be a slow start. Also, this might be the cold. I was thinking about it. It might be the coldest weather he's ever played in. Uh, you know, when he's, when it was snowing in Kansas city, um, you know, thinking about the, the minor league locations, all, I think with the Cubs, all Southern parks, uh, or South Atlantic parks. So I think they're all, um, you know, warmer. This just might be, uh, just completely unfamiliar on a number of levels. So I could see a, a month where Jimenez has, a one out of three good games and is still feeling around, but it did seem less, less anxious. It did seem like he was, uh, Staying back a bit better, not uh, even so many uh, half swings at sliders. Uh, seemed to, he seemed a bit wiser right. for it, but there were some pitches up in the zone that he's not quite connecting on. Um, 
uh, he seems like he's uh, rolling over some pitches and, and that might be more just whether it's timing, whether it's being a little bit too vigilant against sliders and, and maybe not uh, having a natural attack mode set for major league pitching yet, but I, I think it'll get there. Well, the good news is after the two games against Cleveland, Seattle comes to town. So it will get a little bit easier because <laughs> while Seattle's five and one, uh, defensively and pitching, they're not so hot at it right now. So maybe it'll get yeah. a lot easier for LA during the rest of the month, but this could be a tough week for Jimenez to start his career as the White Sox now travel to Cleveland, and we'll preview that upcoming series against the Cleveland Indians. But a quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google and every site is automatically optimized for any device whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. The Cleveland Indians are also 1-2 and two as they had a tough time in Minnesota. They lost the opening day as Jose Barreos outpitched Corey Kluber. Even though Kluber pitched really well, Barreos got the best of the Indians and the Twins were able to score late against the Indians' bullpen. Trevor Bauer was filthy in Game 2 as the Indians won a close, low-scoring game. But in Game 3, the Indians were blown out 9-3. to And overall, the Indians only scored 5 runs in the series against the Twins and allowed 12 runs. Of course, nine of them coming in Game 3. We'll find out more in a moment on what's going on with Cleveland, especially from the offensive side with Matt Lyons from Let's Go Tribe. But the pitching problems for this series on Monday at 3.10 p.m. Central Time, it is the first time White Sox fans will get to see Ivan Nova in a Sox uniform pitch for the team against Mike Clevenger. And there's a Tuesday is the day off. Wednesday at 12.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Carlos Rodon against Corey Kluber. And it's never fun for the White Sox, Jim, as they travel to Cleveland. But as I mentioned, the Indians' offense is struggling out of the gate, and we're going to learn more about that from Matt in a moment. But do you think that this is, the possibility is there for the White Sox to split this series, or are we looking at a 1-4 White Sox team as they come home for their opening day? I think it's possible. I think, you know, when you look at uh, uh, the way the Twins got to Carrasco uh, and how they held down the offense, as you mentioned, uh, pretty rough series for the Indians. Uh, the outfield right now is producing the way it looked like it was going to produce a pretty thin outfield. Uh, Jose Ramirez didn't really have a good series. Um, you know, they're missing Francisco Lindor and such. So there could be the possibility for some low scoring uh, action. Um, you know, the, the White Sox 
pitching staff has to kind of cooperate with that in the defense, especially, I guess that's what I kind of want to see more than anything when it comes to uh, the second series is better defense, uh, better support for the pitching staff. And then hopefully, you know, when it comes to Rodon versus Kluber, Rodon showing a little bit more uh, endurance and, and better stuff the second and third time through as he gets towards like the 60, 70, 80 pitch count. Uh, the stuff really got away from him. Fastballs were elevating, really didn't finishing his pitches. And uh, hopefully getting one start under his belt, getting a little bit of the regular season feel, uh, you know, that comes back to him. But right now I think the Indians are probably as gettable as they're going to get. And, uh, uh, you know, that's hard to say when you're facing Clevenger and Kluber because they both had the White Sox number over the years. But uh, right now when you look at that lineup, it just seems like there could be two to one, three to two games ahead. Well, let's learn more about this Cleveland Indians team as Matt Lyons from Let's Go Tribe, the Cleveland Indians blog for SB Nation, joins the Sox Machine podcast. And hello, Matt. Thanks for taking the time to join the show. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Come on. So the Indians offense, this is the first thing that I look at that I say to myself, Matt, this is not a normal Cleveland Indians lineup that I've been experiencing the last few years they only scored five runs against the minnesota twins and obviously the indians lineup is missing a huge part it's missing francisco lindor so what should white Sox fans expect this week in the two games with a francisco lindor less indians lineup i think unfortunately for indians fans this is the lineup that we have seen every april pretty much it seems like under terry francona i mean before it was just bad all year long at times but even in their winning seasons, they always start so slow. I don't know if it's the cold weather or just something with early on in the season, but I mean, last year they had Edwin, Edwin and Carnacion who started slow all the time. Um, Carlos Santana, who had a really great game on Sunday, actually, it usually starts slow, but he doesn't appear to be. So they're just always a slow starting team. And of course, like you said, they're missing a, a mild piece of their, their lineup in Francisco Lindor. And Jose Ramirez hasn't looked quite himself this year so far. So it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be fixed by the time they they face the White Sox in, in Cleveland. Maybe they're just some kind of, I'm just hoping that being in Cleveland helps something. I don't know what the, what the other solution is. I mean, their outfield, Jake Bowers, has some potential there. But right field, it's, it's just a mess, whether it's Tyler Naquin or Jordan Luplo or Greg Allen. It just doesn't seem like any of those guys can be consistent contributors. And second base, there's some hope in Brad Miller. But even, even there, they're missing Jason Kipnis, who's a big part of their offense. So without those guys getting going... Um, it's going to be a rough a rough couple months for the Indians, I think. The, the big thing is just when Francisco Lindor gets back. But if they can at least get Jose Ramirez hitting something and not messing up all his bunt attempts, I think maybe the, the offense will be better than striking out, what was it, 39 times in three games that they did against the Twins. So maybe we'll see a better offensive output this week against the, the White Sox. Yeah, it's a bit odd because I didn't know what happened to Hanley Ramirez, but his monster home run against the Twins reminded me that he's on the Cleveland Indians now. And I'm sure we'll see him in the lineup against the White Sox. But you did mention Jose Ramirez. Is he 100%? And if he's not 100%, Matt, should he just go on the injured list? As, again, this is a very long season. And we know when Cleveland is at full strength, it's by far and away the best team in the American League Central. Is he rushing back from an injury that looked pretty bad against the White Sox in the last day of spring training? I don't feel like his struggle started with that injury necessarily. I mean, with all the injuries the Indians have had with Lindor and Zimmer and Kipnis, he's not really one of them that I've been worried about. It was just a, a freak occurrence that hit his ankle. The problem is that he was struggling at the end of last season. He struggled through spring training, and now he doesn't look 
like himself at the plate mentally almost more than anything. I think it's that teams have adjusted so well to where he gets the ball. They're shifting on him so hard um, that he's been bunning in his first at-bats. I think the first two games he tried it. And it did result in the, the Twins shifting, undoing their shift a little bit in the third game. But to me, it just seems weird that he's coming out, and he's such a great hitter, but he's already coming out trying to – he's like letting the shift get in his head that he's already trying to combat it by bunting so much. Um, so I don't know if it's just a mental thing or if pitchers are adjusting more to him because they have thrown a lot more breaking balls, which he's a, he's a good fastball hitter. He can he can dig out some bad pitches, but he, when he's not making contact, he's just not going to be good. That's where his power comes from is just how much he makes contact. And I don't think it's the injury. I wish I, I almost wish it was because there would be an explanation for this weird slump that Jose Ramirez is on, but it just traces back so far, and it's the same kind of issues the Indians have seen in the last season. So, again, like the rest of the lineup, maybe he'll just start slow. He did start slow last year. He was three for the, his first 36 at-bats. So he, he did get his first hit finally today, which is a good improvement. And we'll just have to hope and see that it doesn't linger on further than the next couple of games. With the exception of Carlos Carrasco, who struggled in the third game for the Indians, uh, Kluber and Bauer were Kluber and Bauer in their their first starts of the year. This is the first time that Mike Clevenger steps on the mound for the Cleveland Indians as he'll make the start on Monday how did he look this spring? He's looked great. In general, he's had a his velocity's gone up and up a tick or two. It's it, I think it kind of traces back to like Trevor Bauer. As much as people don't like his politics or some of what he does on Twitter, he is a great teammate as far as helping other pitchers who want the help to get better. Um, and he, he's shown Mike Clevenger. They've talked about it plenty much through their their new momentum, um, kind of like behind the scenes video stuff they do. That Bauer has helped Clevenger so much in getting his velocity up and working on his stuff. Um, and I, I mean, if he's like in his 90, he was pitching in spring training at like 96, 97, which is a mile, per, a mile per hour more or a mile or two per hour more than last year. So if he sits there in the regular season, he's going to be really impressive. I see no reason why his ERA couldn't get under three. He's got really good stuff. When he first came up, everything was there, but he was just a nervous wreck. And he was even saying that he would like throw up before games and you could see it when he was pitching that he couldn't hit the outside of the zone. And even in that first year, I remember thinking that if he can find a way to get to the outside of the zone with that curveball that he has, if he can just dot that pitch, he's going to be so good. And last year he started doing that. And now if he's doing that in pitching in the upper 90s instead of the mid-90s, I think he's going to be a really dangerous pitcher. He's fourth on the Indians rotation, which is only a formality because of who they have ahead of him. I'd imagine if he's on a lot of teams, he's a two or maybe even a one, um, depending on how bad the team is. So the Indians' whole rotation is just really great, and Clevenger has been one of the fun ones to watch, especially considering just what they traded for him. Just the half season of Vinny Pistano when he was coming off uh, Tommy John surgery, when Clevenger was coming off Tommy John surgery a few years ago with the Angels, and then now they have him as one of the best pitchers. I mean, he's a dark horse Cy Young candidate at this point, so it's one of the many trades the Indians have done that has gone way under the radar, and they've gotten a potential Cy Young pitcher out of it, and I'm excited to see what he does this season. Now, you highlighted the relationship he has with Trevor Bauer. Do you think that is the ceiling where Clevenger can be as good as Trevor Bauer? I think Bauer is a whole different animal. I think that Mike Clevenger might be more athletic in a way, but but Bauer is just a freak in how dedicated he is to doing everything. Um, I mean, Clevenger has a family already, and Trevor Bauer said like he doesn't want one. <laughs> he spends his entire offseason just crafting pitches and doing whatever little thing he can do to get make himself better. I don't know how you compete with that if you're – about equal athleticism with another player because Trevor Bauer is just ridiculous in what he does. Um, I mean, he's got a changeup now, which is, is super good, which it seems like. And then last year he, got, he just made a slider for himself. So 
I think Clevenger can be really good, but I think Trevor Bauer is just in a league of his own. I, I guess if you count the ceiling as a Cy Young candidate, which they both are, maybe Clevenger counts in that that same conversation as well. But it's just been great seeing those two grow together and just build off each other and be such a great tandem in the Indians lineup, Indians rotation that is. So it doesn't sound promising for White Sox hitters as they face Mike Clevenger on Monday. Uh, it's going to be a very dour day on Wednesday as Corey Kluber steps on the mound. And Kluber has just been a White Sox killer, Matt. Uh, his entire career, how did he look on opening day? Well, to be fair, I mean, he's an everybody killer. <laughs> I mean, he has been a White Sox killer, which is fun to watch, but he kills just about everybody. Um, I differ on that opinion as far as, <laughs> quote, unquote, how fun well, to watch. <laughs> from one side of the aisle, it's pretty fun to watch. Um, but, yeah, he looked like he looked, he's still really good, but he looks like the, the kind of good that he was last year, not the years before when he had like an 11 per nine strikeout rate. He's more of like a soft contact guy. I know his stuff isn't exactly gone, but it's the velocity slowly going down because he's in his thirties now. Some of, some of the edge on his stuff is going down. So he's just similar to like Justin Verlander. He's reworked himself as, as an older pitcher and he's just gotten a lot, a lot better soft contact and it worked really well against the twins, which is a legit lineup. I mean, Nelson Cruz and, um, maybe a Byron Buxton actually being effective in that lineup. So there are some good hitters in the Twins that he he pretty much nullified and held with only two runs, which of course the Indians' offense couldn't overcome. Um, I don't know if we'll see it in this in this series against the White Sox, but but that Indians Twins series that was a dream for Rob Manfred. I'm sure those games were super short. There was almost no hitting except for the third one where the Twins decided to hit. But yeah, the, Corey Kluber looked great in the opening. Um, I have no doubts that he's going to be pretty good against the White Sox and going forward. I do have a lingering question about Corey Kluber, though, and it's something I've been asking aloud all offseason, and it's been these trade rumors attached to Corey Kluber. Matt, why do these trade rumors exist, especially the rumors we've heard that the San Diego Padres have been active speaking with Cleveland Indians about Corey Kluber and also Trevor Bauer at times? And, and are these trade rumors serious? Would Cleveland really trade Corey Kluber away? I mean, they're as serious as they definitely happen because um, in an interview that Paul Dolan had with The Athletic, I think it was last week, he said that – he basically said that they had those conversations but nothing came of it. I don't know how serious they got. I remember a time where it was it was like, ooh, there's trade rumors. This is super fun. But now I don't know if it's just been covering it so long or the, the magic's gone of it. But it's like clearly most of the time these rumors are – one team called the other team and one team leaked to the Ken Rosenthal for leverage. And then he tweets it and that's it. <laughs> so I, I haven't put too much stock into any of these rumors. My, it's always been like, if they happen, I guess that makes sense. I mean, if, if they trade Bauer and Clevenger, they still have great or uh, Bauer and Kluber. They still have three great pitchers, but they probably only trade one of them. So they have four great pitchers. So I wouldn't have minded if they did that and traded and gotten somebody to, to help their lineup out, but they didn't. And I'm fine either way. But I think it wasn't, it wasn't like, right about to happen it also wasn't completely made up but I, I could have saw them making the trade i don't think it's crazy i think Corey kluber's fine with it i would imagine he seems like a pretty even keeled guy i think trevor bauer is, is not even keeled but i think he's understandable of how it happens he even said at one point that he thought it would make more sense to trade him next year than this year and he thought it made sense to trade kluber this year which i don't know how that went over in the clubhouse but Trevor's going to say what he says, and the Indians didn't end up trading either of them, which is is fine for me. I'm happy seeing three or four potential Scion guys in the rotation this year and maybe even next year. Right, and that's kind of where I'm just dumbfounded because what's the what's the end game here for Cleveland? What is the goal? Do you still think that the goal with even Cleveland Indians front office and ownership is to break this World Series drought, or are they just going to be perfectly content? winning the American League Central, and then just 
rant, let's hope for randomness in the American League playoffs? So I think the answer to both those is yes. I mean, I think they're trying to beat, break that record and win the World Series. They're just doing it kind of differently. They're relying on that that randomness because they saw in 2016 that was arguably arguably the worst team the Indians have had in the last three years, and that's the one that made it to the World Series. I think they've gotten to the point where they've realized that you can add all this money, dump all this money in your lineup and have the best team possible and still lose in the playoffs, or you can build your team up and just make them good enough to win the division for half a decade, and you'll probably – there's a pretty good chance to win a World Series somewhere in there. So I think especially with the way the AL Central is going, that's what they're going for. They're just going to try to win the division as much as possible and hope that randomness kicks in. And, I mean, when your randomness relies on five of the best pitchers in baseball plus Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor, it's not a terrible bet. Um, of course, I'd like to see him do some kind of upgrade for the offense. But I also think they have – there is some potential in – I mean, like Bradley Zimmer's injured. He's coming back. So I think he's going to be pretty good. And Jake Bowers, I think, could be a pretty decent hitter. So the lineup isn't completely as dead as it looked. So I don't think – I'm not on the train that the Indians are tanking or they're they're being they're, – they're being cheap, but not like prohibitively cheap. I think they're still working within a range that can win them a World Series in the next few years. They're just doing it in a different way than dumping everything in one season. So they're, they're banking on winning the, the AL Central for a good five, six more years if they can. It's going to be interesting to see when like the White Sox and Royals and Twins – I'll build themselves up where they're legitimately competing with the Indians. That's where I want to see if the Indians do something to stay ahead of the curve then or if they just let it keep going. Because when they start relying on like randomness in the regular season is when I'd be worried. Um, the main thing I'm expecting to see them to do is trade for something at the deadline. Because like last year, they don't need a whole lot during the regular season. So, I mean, why, why pay for a player or trade for a player with a whole year on the line? Just let another team bear the responsibility of a potential injury in the first half and trade for... I don't know, Josh Donaldson, like they did last year at the, at the deadline. So I'm more excited to see what they do at the deadline this year. I think that's going to be their strategy going forward is just go into the year with a team that can probably win the division, add at the deadline, and just hope for the best in the playoffs. All right, so for this series and maybe for the 2019 season as the White Sox and Indians clash 19 times, who is the one player White Sox fans should keep an eye on in this miniseries and for the season? So I'm going to say Roberto Perez, which is kind of a weird one because he's not going to hit the ball well. I'm not expecting you to look for that. But if you're just a fan of, like, good catching – see, this is another thing. It's not going to exactly kill the White Sox. So you can watch it and still appreciate it, I think. Um, when the Indians traded Jan Gomes this offseason, one of the big reasons they did that is because of Roberto Perez behind the plate. Um, he's a master at trapping the ball. He's one of the best framers in the league. And Pakota projects him as one of the best overall catchers just because of his defense. So – I'd assume he's going to start in all three games um, or all two games against the White Sox and a lot over the next 19 games. So just keep an eye on on him behind the plate, um, how he calls games, how he receives, how he throws out runners. And his framing especially is really great. Um, so, yeah, his, his bat's not going to do a whole lot. But watch Roberto Perez. If you get sick of watching Corey Kluber strike down your batters, <laughs> just watch Roberto Perez and focus on how fun that is without being too damaging. Yeah, so you have an injured Indians lineup, not hitting all full cylinders and you have a White Sox lineup that has struggled in the past against Kluber and Clevenger runs will be a premium in these two games. And you can read Matt's excellent work all season long covering the Cleveland Indians at let's go tribe.com. Again, part of the SB nation community. You can also follow let's go tribe on Twitter at let's go tribe and Matt as always. Thanks for taking the time to come on our show and preview this upcoming White Sox Indian series. Thanks for having me on. Before we answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek, with opening day, the home opener for the Chicago White Sox coming later this week. If you need tickets for that game or anything else, 
you got to make sure to check out SeatGeek. For a long time, buying tickets has been really difficult and annoying with a few big companies who really don't care about the customer. Well, SeatGeek is a ticket company where the customer comes first. With more than 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, SeatGeek is focused on making your experience as easy as possible. SeatGeek pulls in millions of tickets from all over the web, rates each one on a scale of 1 to 10, and displays them on an interactive seat map so it's simple to find what you're looking for as the green dots are good deals and the red dots are overpriced. Plus, SeatGeek Every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And I use SeatGeek all the time. I have the app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. In fact, I use SeatGeek to buy opening tickets for the Chicago White Sox. It was really easy to find a great deal even though it's going to be a sold-out game. And the best part is with SeatGeek, my tickets are paperless so I can be able to enter the game with my phone to make it a lot easier for access. Best of all, Sox Machine listeners get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase, and so many of our listeners have reached out to let me know that they've used a promo code to get great deals for White Sox tickets. So take advantage of this offer. Go and download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone or go to SeatGeek.com and use our promo code SOXMACHINE. This is promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase. You can use that for concert tickets, sports, comedy, Whatever you want, whatever you need tickets to go to, remember promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off on your first purchase at SeatGeek. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them at us, at SoxMachine, liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash SoxMachine, and helping support the show and the site by becoming a friend, signing up at patreon.com slash SoxMachine. And rejoining me on the podcast is Jim Margulis to answer your questions. And Jim, I really like the questions that came in this week, so this should be fun. The first question we're going to start with is Pete Chapman. And Pete is asking, I personally think there are a ton of redundancies and there is some poor roster construction to this team. I am wondering if you guys feel the same way and interested in your view of the lineups. I think there is a little bit. Some of that was the the remnants of the Manny Machado pursuit going with Yonder Alonso and John Jay when they had left-handed bats and corner outfielders that weren't that great. Uh, you know, they, they added to the pile of them. I, I think with Alonzo, at least, as you mentioned before, drawing the walks, hopefully that's one way to distinguish them. They really don't have an on-base type bat in the lineup. So if he can be that guy, at least it uh, distinguishes him a little bit from the rest of the pile. But uh, John Jay, we don't really know what he's offering yet. So right now there's, uh, he's not adding to the redundancy, but yeah, I, I, that's, I guess, the biggest reason why I didn't really care for trading for Alonzo so early in the offseason is that it kind of locked in the DH spot, didn't allow them to diversify their lineup or or really pursue options that, uh, you know, might, like Jock Peterson, like that when, when talking about that trade, like guys who are out of options looking for opportunities can be mixed into outfield premium positions and, and DH and rotated through right now. The rotation spots are pretty much right field and, and DH and that's about it. So, you know, that's a little bit uh, tough for 
integrating guys. I think, you know, maybe like somebody like Jose Rondon also adds the redundancy a little bit. So with the uh, number of potential utility infielders they have, but that's a good problem because he didn't look like a, uh, a difference maker really when they claimed him from the Padres, but power shows up out of nowhere. The glove plays all around the infield. And, and right now he's just uh, either a better hit tool or better plate discipline away from being a starter, but a capable bench player right now. And, you know, that's a little bit redundant, but that's the good kind of redundancy. So I think, uh, you know, there's a bit of a mix in both, but I think right now the White Sox are, you know, more or less content to be redundant because nobody's really, you know, aside from, say, the fixtures like Jimenez and uh, Moncada and Anderson, uh, none of them really are in it for the long haul yet. Maybe Abreu changes that or, uh, yeah, you know, maybe something along those lines. But, you know, catcher is going to be rotated through probably. Center field is a work in progress and maybe hoping for Basabe later in the year. Um, right field is pretty much wide open right now. And, and you know, hopefully, you know, like maybe if Luis Roberts uh, really has the big year that he's hoping he has and, and some people expect that maybe, you know, that's, uh, center and right field are solved internally, but it just seems like a lot of stop gaps right now and, and stop gaps who don't quite cover some positions. And so you have these, like say John Jay, like he's not quite a center fielder. So center field still wide open. And, uh, you know, that's a little bit troubling and, and a little bit frustrating, but I, I think, you know, if the White Sox landed Machado, there would be problems that the, uh, everybody would be happy to have, but for the time being, they're just leftovers and, uh, you know, should Alonzo, you know, have more of these series where he's drawing walks and he's hitting for power, um, maybe that alleviates some of it. Maybe it feels like the White Sox have a real DH um, that they haven't had in previous years, and that's okay. But, uh, yeah, I'm still bearish on Alonzo and thinking that it's not a great fit, but it is. <laughs> it's basically the uh, the downside of the trying to lure a player with friends approach. And... <laughs> Can't you really use that next offseason either? Uh, <laughs> nope. Pete, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Rich and Glenn on Twitter, and they're asking you, Jim, if Ricky is such a stickler for hustle and attention to detail, why are the White Sox so pathetic on defense and look completely unprepared? And why was he extended? Well, the second question's easier to answer than the first one. He's extended because the White Sox are weird with managers. Uh, part of it's that, you know, they don't like, uh, or at least teams like to avoid uh, the lame duck manager just because we see what happens with the Cubs. Uh, with Joe Madden uh, entering a season without an extension, it seems like he's more or less waiting to be fired and given some of the Cubs uh, problems early in the first series, you know, that might be something that's, you know, realistic sooner rather than later, or at least kind of falling into that that uh, that rut to where managers usually do get the X. But um, yeah, that's reason why managers, if if teams like their managers and don't foresee changing them within the next two years, they tend to get an extension just to put off that whole thing, give the manager greater authority and, and support. And so that's why they extended him. And also they're just very weird about managers. They don't like firing managers. Nobody really gets fired unless it's absolutely uh, necessary, or at least both parties won out, which might've been the case with Robin Ventura. Um, but yeah, that's just, that's part of it too. But when it comes to the underpreparedness, um, you know, you can look at that one of two ways. You know, we talked about some of the defensive shortcomings. The outfield is going to be bad. The infield is being realigned. And so it may take a couple weeks for, 
players to ultimately find their grooves. But, uh, you know, should that not be the case and should this persist to where the communication problems last and should the uh, uh, infield issues and, and the errors and lack of execution ultimately hang around, uh, that could just be the roster's fault. <laughs> Maybe that's not so much a manager problem as it is a type of player, the White Sox acquire problem or um, just what they have, just because we've seen it before with uh, Rob Ventura, although in that case they do have you know Joe McEwing still around too, and maybe it's just kind of organizational stagnation all over. But um, it, it's probably some of both. You know, some that uh, you know the managers and, and coaching staff have been around forever, and so maybe they're just not the best at what they do. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. It could also be that they're just flawed players, and and flawed players, especially like say in the outfield with the communication issues. If they're outfielders who have been third outfielders at best when it comes to, I guess, defensive capabilities, you know, not uh, they're they're not quarterbacks of the outfield. I think when Adam Angle's out there, the communication issues are basically nullified because he's used to taking charge. I don't think there are any um, commanders there in the outfield right now with Garcia out there, and so that could hang around and just be a byproduct of players being inexperienced and out of position. You just hope that it doesn't result in injury, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's never a good look, um, uh, or it never reflects well on anybody. And it's when you watch the Royals play and they, they were a bit sharper than the White Sox and that could be you know, partially a speed thing too. But, uh, I think part of it is just having these limited players playing out of position, making things look worse than they are. But I would say when it comes to defense, I would probably wait until say after tax day to really get an idea of who's really lagging behind because when you have a small sample and you have uh, players in new positions, I can see these mistakes popping up in the first couple of series, but it should be ironed out pretty quickly before you really start wondering or putting a uh, horrible stamp on things and which could very well be the case. Let's stop talking about the defense. Uh, let's move <laughs> over to our next question. Great question though. I mean, Richin is, is right on. It's just that if you talk about the defense for the White Sox, you're going to get really angry and then it'll lead to conversation about the front office and you just be mad for the next hour. Yeah, it's it's basically a uh, uh, part chicken and egg, part uh, just uh, things are never going to change. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a, Avoid yep. Fernando Tatis Jr. highlights on Twitter also. Just, just go ahead and mute okay. Fernando Tatis Jr. at this point. Uh, he looks pretty good. Our next question comes from Mark Cope, and Mark is asking a positive here. Are we, for the first time in a decade, finally going to get an above-average offense defined by a one hundred, a greater than 100 uh, weighted runs created plus on Fangraph? So as a reminder for those that are not sabermetric educated, for runs created plus, 100 is average. It's a percentage stat. So, Jim... Could we see? Could we be watching an above-average offense from the White Sox? There are some elements there, especially if we have a classic Jose Abreu season on our hands. Yohan Makata taking next step. Makata is a guy who would really be great for uh, a stat like weighted runs created, just because he offers both on base and slugging, which is uh, um, really the White Sox have been below average in this category because they don't really have great on base guys. Uh, the guys who can slug, slug, but. Um, either they're like Todd Frazier where they do have some plate discipline, but don't have the average or they're like, uh, you know, whether it's a Brayu who's 
got a great hit tool, but really doesn't walk that much. And uh, so he, you know, he can't really capitalize on the average. The average more or less make, gives him an okay on base percentage, but uh, it doesn't allow him to have an upper echelon one. Uh, so yeah, I can, I can see, uh, you know, them be having some, some, uh, guys who could be potential monsters. If, if say Yonder Alonso does have a good season, he offers the OBP on top of the 25 home run power. And then Eloy Jimenez, we'll see what happens with him, but you know, should he come close to replicating his minor league line at the end of the year, or at least, you know, uh, come within, uh, or at least see how it could take shape in his sophomore season, then, you know, you have quite a head start. Uh, the problem is that there are a lot of potential dead spots too. Um, you know, Anderson will never be great at that stat just because he doesn't offer on base percentage. You know, I think having an OBP of 310 for him would be a good year. Yomer Sanchez uh, isn't an everyday player, but he's getting everyday playing time, and so that could pile up. Uh, the catchers could be somewhat of a uh, uh, subpar rotation, and then center field is going to be a void too. So. You have these positions where you're going to be rotating guys through, but none of them are going to be fixtures. And and so you just hope that uh, those don't completely undermine the things that are going well for the White Sox in the out in, in say left field at first base, at DH at, uh, at third base. Uh, I, I think there will be um, studs and duds or stars and scrubs or whatever we want to call it uh, being lopsided. Maybe they get to, the low 100s, but I could also see the case where, you know, if they have one injury that knocks a guy out for a month or, or say like a hand injury that uh, hampers a guy, I don't know who is going to make up for that. They, they don't have any potential monsters really waiting in the farm system to take over. Um, so it does look a little bit wobbly and the guys who are above average really need to stay that way for the entirety of the season for them to carry over that line. Mark, thank you so much for your question. And great questions this week from everybody that submitted questions to us on P.O. Socks. Again, if you have a question or topic that you'd like us to tackle in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, again, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Socks Machine and help support the site and the show by becoming a friend at Patreon.com slash Socks Machine. You get additional content from us every single week. You get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests and ask additional P.O. Sox questions that you guys only get to listen to. Also, each of those podcasts are ad-free as well. All you have to do is just go to patreon.com slash machine. And I believe we hit 300 supporters, Jim. Yes, right before opening day. That's awesome. That is awesome. Thank you guys so much for your support. There's still pint glasses. I just got mine. It's awesome. People love it when they see it. Uh, if you want a pint glass, again, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up and help support the site and the show. And that will do it for this edition of the Socks Machine podcast. I want to thank our guest, Matt Lyons from Let's Go Tribe, for joining the show to give us an insight on the Cleveland Indians as the White Sox play the Indians this week. And if you just discovered the podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed.
Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.